All right. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Reviews on these platforms are always appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California, and I'm also joined by a very special guest, physical therapist, Stephanie Allen. Steph, thanks so much for being on the show again. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for, I know you said you're up, but it's still, it's still fairly early to be talking about nerd stuff, so I appreciate it. It's a great way to wake up. <laughs> I tell you, it, it's great to have you. Steph's a PT at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness. And if you're not following her on social media, you should, because she's got some great perspectives regarding the integration of strength and conditioning and the science of pain and rehab. And to hear some of those, you can go back to episode 18, where we had Steph on the show for a Q&A. But she's also going to be doing a webinar for us on February 20th, titled The Psychological Implications of ACL reconstruction in the return to sport decision, which is a really interesting topic because a lot of our listeners, our six listeners, it's like I'm conditioned to say that a lot of our six listeners will be somewhat familiar with the physical metrics of return to play when it comes to ACLR, uh, potentially, or we at least think, well, you should probably get real strong and, and be able to jump and cut and these types of things, but we don't think about how the psychological factors can, can have implications within that entire process. Um, and so we wanted to get you on the show to kind of preface some of these topics that you're going to be diving a little bit deeper into during the webinar. So I guess we can just jump right in because this is a, you know, this is a topic we can go as deep as we want to. And what are some of the common themes that you see in the literature regarding the psychological factors that go into the rehab of an ACL? Yeah, I think first off, you sort of just said it yourself in the sense that what research does show is we are pretty good at taking care of the physical side at this, at this point. Um, we, the physical measures were very cognizant in general, coaches, PTs, even some of the surgeons themselves are really cognizant of quad to hamstring ratio of jump and land of single leg control of, you know, implementing a strength program, sprint program, and then, you know, soft return to sport, those kinds of things. Um, we are really from a physical standpoint, getting really good at, at handling that part of return to sport, but there seems to be a bit of a mismatch in passing those return to sport tests, you know, triple hop, single, single leg, triple hop, um, all those kinds of things that, that are s supported by research to help make that decision as far as the, the athlete being, being ready to return to sport. So the problem and, or the mismatch that I'm referring to is that all those scores seem to be really good, especially with elite level athletes, but the actual rate of return to prior level of play, um, like pre-injury level of play 
is not necessarily improving along with those, you know, us seemingly getting better at physically helping to physically prepare. So what exactly are we missing if the physical side of things is, is pretty good? Um, so that sort of was the initial made me go hmm type thing. And I talked to, you know, I'll give a little, little shout out to Nicole Sertica. And also she turned me on to Claire Ardern, who's done a lot of the research, um, specifically into the psychological impacts, um, or even just considerations in general, because I think she was probably one of the, the bigger names or people who started to actually ask, okay, well, what are we missing? Cause may it's, it's not physical. So, um, and, and it wasn't specifically to females either, just in general. So, um, you know, I know that was a little bit of, of a long preface, but then as far as once I started to dive in, um, you know, I did, I'm doing a little bit of a series right now with, with Josh Walters, the human movement rehab. Um, but what's been consistent is self-efficacy. And I know that it's, I know that that's, it's not one thing, but across everything I've read so far, meta-analyses, all those things, it seems to come back to setting the athlete up um, for success in things and promoting things such as confidence, autonomy, and self-efficacy, having them actually believe in their capability and um, skill with which they they do have. It's just um, that they don't necessarily, after having an injury, maintain that, even if they did have it before. And I'm, I'm wondering, this might be my bias, but I'm wondering if maybe some of um, the underlying confidence slash self-efficacy stuff is, a, is maybe just brought even more so to the forefront when they, when you take their ability to play their sport away. And then when you re-implement, you know, you talk about return to sport after they have, you know, ACL is a, is a long road. So you're talking about six, eight, nine, ten months a year that they've been quote unquote rehabbing and they're crushing rehab. That's great. But then you start to talk about things like a soft return to sport and you, you get these, these reservations I'll say. Um, and then you're kind of wondering like, where the heck did this come from and how do I deal with it? Because my job is to get this kid back on the, on the field. So I think that that's, that's what we're running into. But I think that across, they call it different things in the different studies, but to me, what it, what it, full circle kept coming back around to was um, any which way that you can promote self-efficacy is a really damn good place to start. First of all, shout out to Josh Walters, human movement <laughs> rehab. That's pretty cool that you're, you guys are working on something there. Such you, a good dude. Oh yeah. Josh is awesome. Can you define self-efficacy? And then within that, can you talk a little bit about what you think this is going to sound you know, very broad, but what society tends to do to perpetuate the portrayal of an ACL injury contributing to fear potentially and a decrease in self-efficacy? Yeah, I want to actually do it justice. So I'm going to, I'm going to quick scroll here because they, they define it kind of in the context of injury. Oh, perfect. Oh, also before I forget, can you spell Clara's uh, last name? For people, oh, it's Claire, C L A I R E, and it's Ardern, A R D E R N. So it wasn't, maybe it wasn't exactly in. Oh, here we go, here we go. Okay. Um, Self efficacy, a belief in the efficacy of the treatment, 
Um, that's they put it in. Um, maybe it wasn't specifically this one. I remember reading that it was their their internal belief that they could complete the anywhere from in rehab the task at hand to they could successfully return to sport. And I think obviously the latter is a lot harder um, when you get closer. But I think that the former, the belief in their control over and their skill with which to complete the task at hand is really where we come in. Because on a day-to-day, a week-to-week, a month-to-month basis, whether it's through, you know, our bias might be through um, smart strength training (laughs) once they're kind of done with formal rehab um, and more so on the track to return to sport. But whether it is that on a, on a week-to-week progression basis there, whether it's a, a sprint progression, whether it's um, some jump and land and cutting type drills, those sort of things like progressions with those, I think a mix between, you know, giving them sort of um, what I found thus far and what I'm sort of playing around with is giving them almost like assignments to do on their, on their own, mm. either with a partner or something like that. Um, that we've already practiced in the clinic and they, they know how to do, but maybe, maybe the clinic space isn't super conducive to actually kind of going at that 75 to 80%. Um, if it's sprint cutting, jumping, landing, but that I also hundred percent, you know, when I, when I, the feeling I'm getting is that when I tell them to carry out said, uh, session or activity on their own, I'm saying, I trust you to do this. And there's absolutely no, no harm in you taking this on your own because I think what we forget is that when they're in the clinic setting, you know, we can talk about, um, maybe Mike Amato could talk a little bit more about this, but contextual factors, you know, people feel safe when they're doing stuff with you or in the clinic or whatever it is. So I think when you say, okay, I'm going to have you go do this, not only is that, you know, confidence in them to the utmost, but that is in in my experience thus far, a really good way to support self-efficacy because you're trusting them to do it. They do it. They come back, they report it and you go on to the next thing. And it's kind of like a, you know, rehab isn't linear, but it's, it's definitely helping to trend in the right direction. So it sounds like a big, uh, important piece of self-efficacy is creating independence and maybe that's synonymous, but for the athlete to feel like they don't need you every step of the way, or you are there to guide the process or to present the next step. And then you kind of sign off on your, um, approval. And then they are then able to do that on their own, practice it where otherwise maybe they would have felt like they shouldn't do that without you around, or like you said, weren't safe to do so that I love that. Do you find that the way that we portray, I say we as just general in the field or, you know, even on TV, you know, they talk about athletes and ACL injuries and these types of things. Do you feel like the way that we portray ACL injuries in general is a hindrance to the rehab process? If the athlete is reading and seeing all these things on uh, popular media? I do, unfortunately. And I don't necessarily know if they're is an answer for that because again, whether it's ACL, um, whether it's rotator cuff issues in pitchers, whether it's hip replacement for anybody over the age of 60, these are things that 
are, I'm not necessarily saying that they are not, the numbers don't warrant there being some higher attention for those groups, 100%. Um, but I think in a way, how we end up viewing them, and again, this particular injury and population is, the, the population that's a bit more sensitive to it is probably young females because the numbers do show that that is unfortunately the population that's affected most. But um, I think that in a way, how it's portrayed is, is contributing to the learned aspect of how to view it. Sorry, I'm at work. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, but, and that is something that is really hard because I think that even you can still be set up to have a good rehab um, from start to finish with an athlete, especially if you take a lot, you know, you set expectations in the beginning, you, you sign on as their support buddy and, and, you know, a lot of things, but, um, it is, that is an aspect that I feel like almost all the time, almost all the time, not, not always, but more often than not, that's an area where we have to do a little bit of unlearning. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's hard because as we know, when people's beliefs are challenged, it's not the best feeling ever. So you, you kind of simultaneously have to help reframe, re-educate, unlearn some, some concepts while still promoting, um, you know, less fear, more self-efficacy, more confidence. Um, so it's a definitely a bit of a, a dance I would say. And it's not always, I don't always feel like I'm doing the greatest cause you feel like you're juggling some stuff. Um, but I think that if you have the intent and and the idea that the, you have a, a human in front of you that's being influenced by a lot of different things, so what's to say, you know, how can you best show and educate them in a way that's going to help them believe in, in the process that you feel is best for them? Um, and don't necessarily beat yourself up if, if maybe they don't buy into everything. Um, because, again, if we're talking specifically about ACL – that's a, that's at least a six month stint of their life that they got to kind of buy into, um, and, and stay motivated through that whole time. I, I think if you're talking about a high school or a college athlete, um, to expect that they're going to be hundred percent motivated and optimistic and positive that whole time, you're probably sorely mistaken and, and that's okay. Um, but you're, you, it's the rare uni unicorn of a kid that you're going to have that is like heck yeah, let's go. I'm going to do what you tell me, that kind of thing. Um, especially if it's a young female. So long answer short, yes, I do think that society, though well-intentioned with putting out more information as we usually are, um, potentially is, is portraying it in not as encouraging of a light. You mentioned the importance of setting expectations from the beginning. Do you, and then you said, you know, this is a six, eight, 10 month process, you know, a year potentially before you feel like you're you again without thinking that you had the surgery, maybe longer, you know, it's, it, and so in regards to setting expectations from the beginning, do you have specific conversations that with pretty much every athlete that comes in with a, with the ACL reconstruction in regards to the timeline of things? Do you have, you know, kind of a little checklist that you, you want to tick off to make sure that they understand these particular points from the very beginning? 
Yes, I don't. Um, I sh- that's actually a good idea. I should probably write some <laughs> some of these things down. But it, there is a general flow to the conversation that I have first. Um, I always, always ask them before I kind of unload as far as expectations, how I would call it, because there is a lot to kind of set forth in the first couple of sessions. But um, I always ask them what their goal is, and and I and I specifically say this is more as of late, probably not even the last year, maybe six to eight months. Um, and I don't remember where I heard it. So I should credit someone that I, uh, that I don't know probably. Um, but I asked them if you didn't have this injury right now, like no, like two completely, you know, 12, 14 year old, uh, non-injured knees. And you were at this stage in your life. Cause sometimes it's transitioning to college or whatever it is. And they're kind of wondering, do I continue to play and try and play in college? What are like make it or break it decisions? Um, I always say if, if this was not the case, if you were not in my office talking to me about getting surgery or you were here post-op or whatever, like what would your goal be? What would you most want to be doing? Cause that applies to both an athlete or, or someone who, you know, I see everyone as athletes, but both a, a formal in the formal sense, an athlete and, or just maybe an active middle-aged adult. Um, I, I think that applies to both. So I kind of always, always start there. Um, and then you can start to get a sense. A lot of times if they say, well, I would want to do this, but I should probably, you know, now that I have this. And so that you, they can sometimes, a lot of times they'll fall back into that. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll sort of catch them there and say, well, you know, let's talk about a couple things as far as, yes, is this going to be difficult? Is this going to take a lot of time? Will there be you know, ups and downs slash maybe sometimes with a little bit of sensitivity and swelling once we start doing more things. Yes. All of that. I'm not going to hide any of that from you. I was like, but this is hundred percent doable. It's happened a lot of times before it's happened to me <laughs> and I'm here and I'm doing, you know what I mean? Like, and, and that is obviously a card I can pull because it's, because it's happened to me. And I, I had, um, you know, at the time, decent rehab, but I could still do everything that I want to do right now. Um, and it didn't, it didn't hinder any, any of my goals really. So that is sometimes a, a card that I can pull, but I do kind of explicitly have that conversation. I would say, I just had someone come into me last week, um, pre-op referred to me from someone else. And the whole session, I didn't take a ton of me- measurements. I kind of was like, you know, she's, she is a young kid. She's playing, she plays adult lacrosse and, we did a lot of just kind of like, okay, you can do this, that, and the other thing prior to surgery. We're going to focus on these things. And then, and then it, um, as far as expectations, what to expect immediately after surgery. Cause I think sometimes people are like, well, am I going to lose a ton of ground? Should I wait for surgery? Um, all those sort of things. So just to, to put what I just said in an example, you know, we, we pretty much talked for, for most of the hour. Um, I looked at her squat hinge and step and single leg and a couple things like that. I mean, measured swelling range of motion, the basics. Um, but essentially I think the biggest thing that I kind of felt that she took away was that she can actually do things until, <laughs> until surgery. Like she wanted to go to spin. She wanted to, um, you know, do, do a couple of other things that she, she normally does. And she was feeling so stiff walking around in her brace. And then she came back to me yesterday and she was like, you know what? I, not only am I not really as sore, she's like, but I feel like it's moving better and I feel better. And this is pre-op. So, you know what I mean? So I think that sometimes, yes, setting the expectations as far as 
I'm going to need you to kind of sign on with me as far as a, a commitment contract and know that it's not necessarily going to be all sunshine and roses the whole time, but it's a hundred percent doable. And I'm signing on board with you. Um, there's the serious part of it, but there's also the giving them permission to move, especially if it's pre-op. And that I, again, I feel like goes beyond just ACL. I think that we probably quote unquote, give permission to move to a lot of people in their initial eval because they've either been told, don't do this, don't do that or the other thing. And I've even had some people tell me that I'm, I'm so sick of just being told not to do stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to tell you not to, not to do that. So it definitely applies, applies to them. And even though it's a little bit unique, that's a, a, a little bit of the spiel that I usually have um, first day or, or first couple sessions. Yeah, I think with ACL, especially there's this misconception that you shouldn't, you shouldn't work the knee until it gets quote unquote fixed. Yep. And well, and we know that going the stronger you are going in, the more muscle mass you have going in, the the you know the better you are coming out of it. But I was going to ask you before I forget: Do you have any a- athletes right now who are ACL deficient and are opting to not get surgery, or have you had those clients in the past? I have I've had one. Uh, most most younger clients obviously opt for surgery, especially if they're going to continue just more from you know. Um, talking about arthritis down the road or stability in general. Um, but I did have a patient who had been a Cobra for five years and mm-hmm. he was 20, I think he's 27. Um, he's going to end up getting surgery. Um, but he was not to the same level. He was playing hockey. He was, um, I think he was playing like summer league soccer or something like that. Nothing crazy. Um, intensity or whatever, but still sport of sort. And he was lifting and running. Um, so I have definitely seen that be successful. And I also, I've not worked directly, um, with them, but I've met actually patients that I was working with for something else, you know, a a shoulder or something like that, who, who said they've had a partial tear for a long time, or they've had, um, a full tear and just, you know, they were a little bit older and not going back to sport anyway. They just wanted to kind of go to the gym and, and be healthy and, and fit and whatever that means for them. And, um, and they don't have any problems. Yeah. The only reason I asked is because I have two on my caseload right now, both in their late thirties and neither of them doing any type of cutting or jumping or, or running sports. They just lift weights and one of them does uh jujitsu. So it made me think their questions are, were commonly to me, especially in the beginning. Well, how am I going to ever get to back to full function if I don't have an ACL? And, and there, I mean, there, you know, it's, it's warranted that it's going to feel, it may feel somewhat unstable for a while or, you know, maybe even just a little bit different for a longer while, but yeah. it's not like your knee is no longer connected or you right. don't, you know, it's not like your patellar tendon that if you didn't have one of those, it would be pretty darn hard to use your knee or something like that. So there is that misconception. And you, um, it took a while for them to understand that we can pretty much do everything that you want to do. And we're going to treat it pretty uh, similar to as if you had the surgery. There just won't be that initial stage post-op where you know, you're all swollen and cut up and, and can't move. We actually get to almost have a head start um, 
the end game, you know, is generally going to be the same for you because you're not going to these specific sports. And I, you know, we, we had the conversation, but it was just, I saw the parallel there when you were talking about training pre-op. Yeah. Do you have, do you make sure that you ask your athletes or you talk to your athletes about time-based references versus criterion-based references? And what I mean by that is, I'm sure, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume when you, a lot of your athletes will ask you about timelines. When yes. will I be back? Mm-hmm. Um, when will I be able to do this? When will I be 100%? Th- those types of things. And especially if they've already gotten some of those answers, maybe from the surgeon or, mm-hmm. you know, the surgeon said I'd be cleared in four months or the surgeon said I'd be back on the field in six months doing stuff. Yep. Do you... Sp- do you do anything to kind of spin that a little bit back to, well, let's pass these kind of, you know, baseline metrics or these, these benchmarks, and then we'll kind of see, um, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. I think that the, the most common time that that comes up initially is, um, when they can go back to running and there's such variety still in what surgeons are comfortable with. I would say the majority are still a little bit more conservative and they say nothing before 10 to 12 weeks. Um, there's some that, uh, just don't give an answer and that's why the, and that's why the patients get a little bit anxious because they all want answers. And I understand, um, the, the second half is usually, so in general, I try not to address timelines at all. Um, the only thing that I do kind of in my own head keep in mind that's important in the beginning is I really want to try and get that range back and the swelling down like within a month. I don't want to be going into month two, like having trouble getting past 90 degrees of flexion and lacking 10 degrees of extension. I think that that is one way that I've been able to sort of predict the rest of the success with, with stuff. Um, because the, the longer that lingers, the longer you have to wait to start to bear weight on a bent knee and things like that. And it just, it definitely, that is one thing that, um, I, in my own mind, I won't say that to them, but that's something that I'm really shooting for, um, month one. The second thing that's been really, really nice, um, to help me, I guess, state my case for not necessarily, or adhering tightly to timelines and or advocating for a little bit of comfortable with the, with the uncertain with some of the timelines is um, I got to give credit to, to Mick Hughes and Randall Cooper because they came out with the Melbourne ACL guidelines. And there's, so if you look at it and it's definitely something that um, if you haven't already taken a look, I, I want to say it's like five us dollars, something like small for, to get this whole protocol. And and their point was not necessarily to, you know, it was a a more abundance thing. They wanted to just share the knowledge, which is great. I appreciate it. And I was able to look at it. um, And it's, it's great because it is both clinician and patient or athlete friendly as far as reading and getting an idea and, for the clinician themselves, there's a really detailed, um, like scoring sheet with criteria and all these things, but it's heavily backed by research. So I, a lot of times if, if people are kind of probing for where I, where you get that from, or is that just your, you know, are you just really lax on timelines? If I'm getting that sort of skeptical vibe, um, I will totally show them that and, and say, listen, this is, these are really, really strict in, in-depth guidelines from one phase to the next. And it's almost like 
sometimes one of the analogies I use is parents freak out if their kid isn't talking by like 10 or 11 months or whatever the, whatever those, um, milestones are for walking and talking. And it's pretty well accepted at this point that that is a very large range and and each kid is different. And I say, I don't see this any different, that there's certain things that taking your specific goals in mind, taking any concomitant injuries that came with it, if it wasn't just straight ACL, taking into consideration um, any complications with surgery, any previous injuries, um, all of these things make your timeline different than somebody else's, even if it's just a week or two. Um, and usually they're pretty, they're pretty understanding of that. Um, because I also do say at the same time, it's not like I'm going to be lax day school with you. Like I'm still going to push you. But if it's one of those things where I want to wait a week or two and run at 12 weeks instead of 10 weeks, that shouldn't be any, that shouldn't be concerning at all. And you're going to, you're going to get to your goals, um, your path. That makes sense to me. And when we talk about psychological factors in regards to ACL rehab, sometimes people might interpret that as, well, we should, we need to set aside a specific chunk of time working on psychological treatments. And what is that? Oh, we're psychologists now, these types of things. It's kind of like the same parallel with pain science being its own treatment strategy instead of just intermingled in in the process of managing the experience of pain can you talk a little bit about how incorporating the psychological factors into the rehab process doesn't necessarily have to be this thing that's explicit to the athlete yeah and i think that some athletes need very little of it I think that in the beginning you get a sense, yes, I, I do think that there's merit to using um, what I've been comfortable using as far as far as outcome measures have been the, the ACL RSI, the Return to Sport Index, and um, the Tampa Kinesiophobia Scale. And those are just part of, I, I have found very little skepticism with making sure that those are just part of like the normal intake packet that they get, that they have to fill out when, um, you know, for their initial eval with insurance stuff and all that Um and it seems to make it, if you present it then, it's kind of a little bit more routine. It's not necessarily like, okay, why does she want to know about my confidence with loading my knee and things like that. Um, so, yes, I do I do think that those are important. But I think that the what makes it most useful, and I even hesitate to say it as far as um, a treatment thing or tool, because it's, it's really not that, just like you said, pain science isn't like a modality, really. It's um, the clinician having some background knowledge of that concept and then being able to navigate where it might be snagging or hindering progress. So, for example, I'm not necessarily going to have a psychological conversation with the, with the person day one as we start to do things. You know, as a clinician at this point, you can really tell how confident they are with, you know, um, what's the word, completing a task that you give them, even if it's something like a terminal knee extension with a band or walking normal. If they're really struggling with just getting back like a normal gait pattern, maybe we dive into that a little bit more. Like, hey, what do you, what do you think's 
limiting you and really being curious and asking questions is a super helpful actual tool um, to be able to direct you the right way as far as education, promoting self-efficacy, confidence, all those kinds of things for that specific person. I know that's not a super concrete answer, but I think that if I were to guess and or give a picture of how I sort of use it, implement it, um, it's, it's that. It's both via my eyes kind of seeing, okay, this person clearly is not comfortable with bearing weight on a bent knee in this particular pattern. So I'm going to switch it up. If they're, if they're still not, if that seems to be consistent, then I might dive into that a little bit more. The bigger thing becomes when you're talking about stepping foot back on the court or, or the um, field. And at that point, if there, there are some large enough reservations in their own head, they'll come out verbally then most often, because then it's like almost a, um, if they're truly not confident from within they're but they are very well off physically. Like that's when you can probably start to ask like, Hey, how do you feel ready? Do you, you know, and that's an appropriate time I think to ask. It's not necessarily three months post-op when they're working on loading goblet squats or something like that, that you're like, Hey, do you feel ready to go back to sport? Like that it's not, you know, it's definitely a progression. Um, but I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. On average, how often are you measuring the RSI and the Tampa scale or just giving it to the athlete to score? So I have not been super, that's kind of a, a staff 2019 goal. Um, I, it's rare that we get people pre-op. So when I do like, like I was saying, I just got this woman last week and I'm like super excited. Um, and she's super strong. So I'm really pumped, but, um, it is helpful to be able to, to have that measure as like a baseline, either right after surgery or before surgery. And then to be honest, I am planning to, from this point out do like in every three or four months, mm-hmm. um, actually probably every three months, just because after six months or so, what I'm hoping to start to do is something a little bit, um, more along the lines of like a be a remote coach almost and be like, you know, potentially be a little bit more hands off and um, help guide them through a strength program slash maybe they come in once a week or once every other week. And um, we work a little bit more on the plyometrics and some of those kinds of things and sports specific stuff. I'm hoping that that's where my, my role is shifting to at that point. So in that case, it might be um, a little less often, but I would love to do it, you know, three, six, and maybe a year as far as keeping some of my own data. That model sounds really interesting. It kind of goes back to what you said earlier about you being the guide in the clinic and then sending them off to do their own thing. And then you, they can come back to see you, you check up on things, level up a little bit, and then do it again. Yeah, I think um, that that is where I... I see myself and hopefully where outpatient sort of, you know, a good outpatient experience goes towards. I I think that, um, I think Derek Miles is already doing something like that a little bit at Stanford. Um, And so I'll probably have to pick his brain at some point as well, but it just, especially now being in network and still treating people with insurance, it's such a pain in the, you know what, because they get to a point where they're quote unquote not approved for anymore, but you're like, well, shit, what do I, you know, we're, we're not quite done here. 
Um, but I think that we can nip that in the bud in the sense of spreading, you know, after that first phase and a half or first two phases, we sort of spread them out a little further, delegate tasks, unless there's some other confounding issue going on. But for the most part, um, if they're putting in the work, I, I think it's more than appropriate to do that at that point. And the nice thing now is not only are you kind of quote unquote working around the insurance issues, but now you're also feeding into the self-efficacy, which what the research is showing is kind of exactly what we want to be doing. So to me, if we can start to set up that type of um, rehab to transition to training with a little bit of supervision um, and then a soft return to sport, I think if we can set that up and make that the expectation and have people pumped to do it, I, I would be hard-pressed to think that we don't make a little bit of progress as far as returning to prior-level sport. Well, and if you save some visits for after they return to sport, you know, do some checkups because some athletes, once they're back on the field, they kind of forget that they, you know, about rehab. And sometimes you can have a little bit of a regression, you know, that quad index can look real good going, going back in. And then three or four months into the season, you can retest. And it's like, Ooh, we lost a little bit of ground. So yeah. One of the reasons I asked about how often you plan to reincorporate those outcome measures is because I just took an ethics course from Nicole Sertica, actually, and it was very, very similar to the topics that we're talking about. It was it was ethics of, of return to play. And yeah. one of the scenarios that she threw out there was, what if all of your objective measures check out? Your quad index looks fantastic, your hop tests all clear, rate of force development clean, you know, they're they're looks looks really really good you can't you know the eye test which that is probably means nothing but they just look yeah. good objectively yeah. but then either you ask them or your outcome measures say otherwise in regards to their psychological readiness have you experienced that where objectively they're looking good but they may be mentally not quite there or do you actually find a correlation if somebody's super strong and rate of force development's all clean and all these ratios are, are solid that tends to correlate with a higher psychological readiness? Thus far, um, I I would agree that usually if the physical tests are being passed with flying colors, they they know they're crushing it in a sense. Um, I think that the part where the psychological stuff can be detrimental is that they just tend to be that type of person or that type of kid in, in that um, it doesn't really matter how well they're doing. They're still going to be skeptical. They're still going to be somewhat traumatized from the original experience, even if it's six plus months out. Um, and at that point, usually, cause you have to think about it too, you've been spending a good amount of time with this, athlete for a lot of months. So if you haven't already touched upon it or they haven't sort of alluded to it, that's when I think having the actual candid conversations of like, do you feel ready? Definitely come in. Um, and then as far as specifically to your question, I've had one very clear interaction with an athlete that is just what you propose as far as she was strong as hell, like moved really, really well. Everything looked equal. Um, but she was 
just so anxious about going back and not feeling ready and like was unsure about sprinting and but everything that we tried everything I threw at her she did great um and that was tough because I didn't have her for most of her rehab she came towards the end because she had had rehab at home and then was playing college locally or playing college lacrosse locally um and so was kind of coming off of working with a different rehab team. Um, and they, this perfect example, they set her up so well physically, so well. But just from talking to her for five minutes, I was like, I would have I, I picked up on your anxiety in general like months ago and probably started to plant seeds. And so really what we ended up doing, because I only got to see her for four or five visits, um, before she went back was I, we sat down for like one whole session. She didn't do anything physical because she was just so, I mean, she, she cried a couple of times <laughs> and, and that's okay too. Um, we figured out what she was least confident in and it happened to be sprinting and change of direction. So we had a, a few weeks of setting up some challenging cutting drills here. I filmed her, showed her. Um, and then we came up with a, a sprint progression and I emailed it to her and had her check in with me after. And as far as I know, I, I emailed her a few weeks ago, actually, she haven't heard back, but as far as I know, she went into the, the lacrosse preseason. So again, that's, it's not always necessarily going to work that smoothly, but that is probably the best example I have of on paper, this girl looked damn good and she just wasn't ready. She wasn't ready. So that's where I feel like if it were, it, a, a winter sport season that she was trying to get back to and, and probably to Nicole's point, I'm not necessarily sure I would, I would have her go back full. Like maybe we would talk about restricting minutes and have it be a, a soft return and come up with a plan for ourselves. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely with that thought that she offered because um, who knows if the, if the mental readiness is not there, does it, does it alter how you're moving and maybe predispose you to injury in any way? Um, you know, that's something that I don't know. We might not ever know, but I would love for my athlete to step on the field, not just feeling ready, but feeling like overqualified and freaking excited to be there. Um, so You've yeah. yeah. You've mentioned a soft return to sport a couple of times and with a concurrent strength program with that, can you, <laughs> can you explain a little bit about what you mean in regard, in regards to a soft return to sport as, and then how that would progress to sport itself. Yeah, absolutely. I, it is slightly different for different sports. So there's certain sports where like, you know, something like soccer or basketball or lacrosse is nice because you can literally just cap it at minutes. Um, and again, that's also going to be a little different depending on how intense a game is or whatever. But for the most part, you can be fairly confident that if we, you know, if there's two, 40 minute halves or 45 minute halves in, in a high school soccer game that if we do 20 minutes tops, um, then that's like a good starting point. And then you sort of just increase as you feel okay. Um, and then for things like, um, football, it could be number of, of snaps for, um, volleyball. I think there's, there's number of, uh, I don't know how they exactly, sub in or out or whatever, but, um, matches per se, like one, every time they switch, you know, that you come off type thing. So those are sort of 
some of the strategies I've used with my athletes thus far, you usually it's either a time or a um, snap or match of sort involvement. And then if they go, let's say two to four weeks at that level and feel fine and feel like they're recovering okay and there's no other residual issues, then I then I say, you know, let's let's try one full game, whatever however you would be utilized normally, because I know that not every athlete even normally plays an entire game or match or whatever it is. Um, and, and then we go from there, but that's, that's kind of what I mean by soft return is usually we'll limit, um, minutes, reps, sets, matches, whatever that is. Um, and I find that prior to that, having them sort of almost have a soft return to practice, so having them do like the warm up, some drills and cool down, but maybe not scrimmage um, for a few weeks before they, they go to a soft return to games. That's kind of how I've been tiering it. And I've, I've had pretty good feedback and, and results as far as feeling ready to go back to like a full game. Um, but we'll see. Maybe maybe six months from now, a year from now, we have this conversation. And I'm like, yeah, I was totally wrong. <laughs> but no, it sounds like a logical graded exposure program. I mean, you're modulating f- frequency and duration and intensity, kind mm-hmm. of like what we do with strength training. It's the field sport. Uh, there's a lot more variables that go into it just because of the movements are a little bit less predictable and the environment's a little bit less predictable, but mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm assuming whatever movement patterns or things that you're predicting that they're going to have to go through during these practice times or during these um, periods where they're on back on the field, you have uh, developed the qualities in the gym or you've, you've practiced those things in part, you know, throughout the process. And now you're just basically telling them we've done all this stuff. Everything that you're going to do on the field or at practice, we've already worked on and you have the ability, you have the capacity to handle that. Now we're just putting it, into a gameplay mode. And- yeah, and I really, I have to, I know we touched a bit on the, the parallels with strength training too, but I've really found both for myself and for athletes that I've worked with that a really good and healthy place to start as far as building that confidence is in the gym, in the weight room. And I'm not saying that every, every athlete needs to back squat and bench and deadlift and whatever but I've seen it firsthand, um, you know, those and accessory lifting type things, sports specific things, um, single leg things. When they move around some heavy weight and they feel stronger, that is such a good base for them to start feeling stronger with, with cutting, with jump and land, with sprinting. And I really, you know, yes, I have a little bit of a, a soft spot and an interest for ACL, but I, I would love, love, love to eventually be a little bit more entrenched in just youth athletics in general and starting to teach things like squat, hinge, jump and land, um, cut and sprint, like literally just like five foundational movements. And on the other, on the other side, as far as females, just make lifting cool because what they don't realize is that 
that is risk reduction. And at around 13 to 14 years old, 12 to 14 years old is when the numbers really change ACL wise as far as, as risk. And, and at that point is where they've seen that it increases so much for females. And when we think about it, what happens at that age, the guys are, are encouraged to go, to go lift and the girls are not. And it's like, is that the entire picture? No, but I think there's something there. So I think that if, if nothing else, that there's definitely a shift a little bit more towards that being a part of almost every <laughs> rehab program, because I don't care what age you are, it's still going to help you be more of a robust, resilient human that whatever it is, whether it's a high elite organized sport, or if it's picking up your grandkids and, and keeping your balance when you, when you step down a curb, like it's, it's all, it's all relevant. Well, strength training is kind of that microcosm of the biopsychosocial model. It's creating specific adaptation, you know, biological adaptation and in a closed environment, you know, in a, in a safe environment, you can work on, on slow force development. You can work on fast force development. You can do different planes of motion and you get repetitions are just practice. You yeah. get lots of practice. And then there is that magic, that non-specific magic to the process of strength training where you're, you're building physical resilience, but also mental resilience as you're going through that process over and over and over. And, you know, like you said, the athletes don't, they remember the work that they put in, you know, and then <laughs> whether, when they're faced with a situation now, they can be more confident because they know how hard they've worked and right. the specific adaptations take care of themselves. You know, it's, it's kind of putting the two together. Yeah. I want to end on how we, how, you know, what the research is looking like and what direction in the future that you would love to see in the, in the literature in regards to the, to this topic, psychological side of ACL rehab, what are some of the things that would really, really help you in practice to, to come out in, in the literature in the next three to five years? I really want them to keep diving into that whole self-efficacy thing. Um, because it's, it's well supported, but I still find even myself playing around with how, okay, so how do I make sure that I am always reinforcing that? Um, are there, is there things, are there things within already well-established successful programs or, um, uh, yeah, like programs, rehab programs that, um, have specific, you know, I, I hate to say the word tools, but like strategies, I guess, to, to progressively address confidence and self-efficacy with, within their kind of protocol already. I don't necessarily know if that's possible. Um, but I think that because it was something that both in qualitative and quantitative studies, meta-analyses that I've, you know, I haven't read all of them, obviously, but in, in what I've come across so far, it, that, that seems to be at the center, at the, at the root of a lot of these things. Um, so if that is kind of the consensus thus far, then, okay, can we dive a little deeper and figure out if there's specific ways to um, promote that and keep that at the forefront of what we are doing clinically? Um, so that is probably, like I said, it's probably super hard to, to study and I'm not necessarily sure I have the answer, but, um, for lack of a specific one, I think that what's out there 
so far, um, kind of, we just need to keep going with it in a sense, because a lot of the, you know, research itself is good, a good study per se is, is one that doesn't necessarily answer a question, but gains a lot of insight and information and then prompts and, and even narrower slash better question. Um, and I think there's been a lot of questions brought up in, you know, Claire Ardern studies, um, and, and some of the others that I've looked at. And I think that, you know, it's not necessarily anything specific, but let's keep going with this for a little bit longer and, and get a little bit more information, maybe from different, um, demographics as well, instead of potentially elite level athletes, because I think that there's also a good portion of the population that are sort of, like you said, just middle-aged active. And, and I think that they fly under the radar with ACL, um, but they are, they are just as prevalent. So I think that one suggestion I would have is potentially expand on the demographics of, of who they're studying. Um, but let's just kind of keep pushing forward and just keep asking these questions because I don't think they're asked enough. I love what you said there that we should just be trying to set up the next question. And that's really what science is, right? You, you ask a question and then you, it directs you to the next question and you set it up one study to then ask the next question. And I don't think that when we're talking about anything psychological, psychosocial, that it's going to be easy or black and white to, to study. I think there's always going to be some of those limitations and, and uncertainties, but, um, this was awesome stuff. Thank you so much. I learned a ton. I've got notes here, some, some references I want to check out and don't. So Steph is going to be doing a webinar for us. Like we talked about on this exact topic. So she's going to dive in to this stuff even deeper. Um, it's going to be on February 20th and the link is on the clinical athlete website. So you've got a couple options there in regards to signing up and Steph, where can people find out more about you or can they connect with you? Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on and letting me, I'll, I'll dive down the nerd rabbit hole a little bit on, on February 20th. Um, there's another, another study that, uh, I kind of fell in love with over the course of the last week. So I'll touch on that a little bit too. Um, mostly on Instagram, just at stephallen.dpt. Um, we also have a Boston PT wellness page. It's just also, it's at Boston PT wellness. Um, we're working on being a little bit more consistent there. Um, and we do also have the website, um, bostonptwellness.com and um, yeah I'm Steph Allen on Facebook but I'm just not as not as active on Facebook poor Facebook <laughs> I know it's, <laughs> it's, I think it goes through waves totally. um, a, a bit but cool again thank you so much I'm really looking forward to the webinar this was great and uh, we will we will talk soon thanks everyone <laughs>